This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Today on the pod, Crackdown, BC's post-secondary institutions won't be allowed to enroll international students for up to two years, and they'll be setting a minimum language requirement. What took so long? Plus, as BC moves to restrict cell phone use in schools, we speak to an American lawyer who represents school districts across the U.S. who are suing big tech over the youth mental health crisis and suffocating red tape. Why do city hall permits for a bathroom rental cost over $2,000 in Vancouver? That's all next on the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Earlier today, the BC government announced a new um, announced no new institutions will be allowed to enroll uh, international students for two years, as the province seeks to eliminate exploitative practices in the field. Uh, Minister Selena Robinson also announced the province was setting minimum language requirements at private institutions, so international students will be better prepared before coming to British Columbia. Now, Premier David Eby was asked about today's uh, announcement. Take a listen to some of his comments. It's important to keep in mind uh, with those numbers that this is the first stage of, frankly, a discussion that we're having with the federal government about the number itself, as well as any other areas that might be carved out for areas of particular need, Uh, training LPNs, uh, the nurses who work in long-term care facilities, for example, uh, training for daycare workers, child care workers, uh, who allow us to open more child care facilities in the province if they're properly trained to our high standards, Uh, truck drivers, other skilled trades, These are areas where we know uh, we have significant labor shortages, uh, where these schools can be very supportive in supporting British Columbians. And so we'll be having conversations with the federal government about what the numbers mean and what the exemption areas may be. Joining me now to talk a little bit about the issue is Selena Robinson, BC's Minister of Post-Secondary Education and Future Skills. Minister, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jeff. It's almost like we talked last week on this issue, but I think it's an important one, that's in for fact, sure. We did. <laughs> um, exploitative practices. How uh, bad had the situation gotten here in British Columbia? If you use the term exploitative practices, uh, how bad was it here in British Columbia and still is in regards to international students being taken advantage of? So, in terms of you know, sort of numbers, it's really hard to say because certainly, um, sort of, you know, last year when we started to look at this, and I want to give a shout out to a couple of, of, of reporters, in particular Kieran Singh, who did a, you know, a great job of helping to shine a light on some of these practices. Um, we would hear some complaints for sure, uh, where students were told to show up, uh, you know, at a, at a I'll just say a strip mall, go upstairs, or that's where the classrooms were. Mm-hmm. They'd show up and told that the rest of their program was all going to be online, for example, right? Rather than in class mm-hmm. learning, which is what they thought they were coming for. Um, but we also heard from, from students, um, immigrant service societies, um, as well as from students themselves, that to complain, because they have a complaint based system, to the um, to the PTIB, which is the Training Institute branch, the Private Training Institute branch, um, was really hard for some people. Either in their in their home country, complaining was not acceptable. It was you know there would be backlash, or they were afraid that they'd lose their student visa after you know they spent all this money. And so um, the complaint based model wasn't working for really understanding what was happening on the ground. 
Um, and so we're going to be taking a look and actually doing inspections instead. We're going to take responsibility for making sure that people are delivering and schools are delivering what they say they're delivering. Will this lead to closure of private sector uh, colleges, some some closures? Well, there, there might be. I mean, we're... we're, we're um, we're requiring certain standards, and we're going to be checking on those standards. Um, and if they're not meeting those standards, uh, there will be an expectation that they raise the bar. I mean, this is about people getting hurt. They're spending a lot of money. They're looking forward to getting a good quality education. And if it's not being delivered, then we need to um, hold them accountable. And if they can't deliver them, then they'll have to rethink their business model. Why did it get so bad? It's a great question, Jazz. And I and I when I take a look at the data over time, um, the number of international students has been growing certainly over the last decade, um, but it's been growing at a somewhat steady pace. And really, uh, taking a look at some of the data, particularly around the private sector providers, it really spiked post COVID. Um, it just sort of went through the roof post-COVID. And trying to understand sort of, you know, what was it about that? Because everything dropped during COVID for 18 months to two years, and then it just spiked back up and um, beyond what anything we'd seen before. And I think there's a couple of things. One, I think the pent-up demand, for sure, to for students, you know, to um, who want to come and get an education. But also... I think um, we're all familiar with working online, with learning online, and a lot of uh, operators. I mean, and I also want to be clear, Jazz, there's lots of good operators, too. It's not the entire sector is bad, um, but we are hearing more and more stories where um, uh, people are getting what they paid for. Um, and so I think with the online, I think there are some operators that are taking advantage of that that are saying, you come into the classroom, um, and then we're just doing online. And it could be asynchronous, which means there isn't a, a body on the other side. It's just a recording. And you just go online. And so you're from a business model perspective, uh, you, you just have this one faculty person giving lessons, and people log online to get the lesson. How much do you, blame, not, how much do you blame the federal that? government on this uh, in regards to uh, this many international students coming in and the system not being able to provide them the education that they're paying for? Because it seems to me that these international students, many cases, are being used as temporary foreign workers, another way around uh, our immigration system. Well, I've certainly heard that, uh, heard that complaint. And I think the fact that it was, they were being, you know, in some ways given out like candy, if I can suggest, like they were just, um, and, and with the postgraduate work permit made it a very, very attractive way to come, uh, to come to Canada. And again, we need um, immigrants, we need a skilled, talented workforce. And we're prepared to work with the federal government um, to make sure that we are, are filling the vacancies that we know are there and that we know and anticipate over the next decade. We're going to have a million job openings, Jazz, um, and we know that with immigration numbers being set the way they are, there will be enough bodies coming to uh, Canada and coming to British Columbia, but we need to make sure that they have the skills they need. So healthcare workers, early childhood educators, truck drivers, carpenters, we need these. Uh, we need people to build the homes that we need, um, and there's not, frankly, not enough people. So we're going to be depending on immigration and international education to help train the workforce that we need. So I'm hoping that we can get um, a better, and what I'm going to be working for, and, and I know what the Premier's going to be working for, is a better alignment uh, about um, working together with the federal government to make sure that we have a system that works for everybody and that supports their economy, supports the services that people depend on, um, and, and that international students, again, have a good experience, and they want to stay here. They want to stay here in Canada and continue to contribute. Uh, right now, we have 545,000 post-secondary students in public and private institutions in our province, but 175,000 
are international students. Isn't that number quite high? I mean, in regards to percentage of total post-secondary, post-secondary institutions relying on international students. I mean, what, what number would you like to see? Because if you well, went to the average British Columbia and said we have 175,000 international post-secondary students in BC out of 545,000 post-secondary students, that number would be, I don't think, acceptable to most people. It's just too high. And, and, and I, don't, I don't disagree. And 90, uh, 55% of those, right, so um, 94,000 um, international students are in our private training inst- institutions, in our colleges. Mm-hmm. And um, I'm not sure that they're getting the quality that they should have. I'm not sure that they are getting the skills that are needed by our economy in terms of what is needed. And so we collectively need to make, be making sure that, that that's happening. And that's what today's announcements are about, is that we have to have better alignment. We're also going to be working with our public uh, to ensure that they have the right balance and the right mix. Um, we, you know, taking a look. We, I do know that there's a couple of institutions where they, they, are, they have probably more than their fair share of international students. And so we're going to be taking a look about how to, how to right-size um, their um, international student body and also making sure that there's the, the supports for the students. Again, we want those students to have a good experience, have a quality education so that they're ready for, um, for contributing to our economy. And Jasmine, I just have two seconds to tell you a story I've heard of in one institution where um, they opened up another section mm-hmm. in this program and all the students were from the same province in India in this section. Now, that's not international education the way I think any of us envision it. There should be interaction with, with domestic students. Um, the whole idea is to form relationships, um, to learn Canadian culture. But when we do that, that's not good either for the students or, or for, the, for the program or for the economy. Yeah, and, and the problem is, and you have recruiters uh, from one state, I'm going to assume that's Punjab, add to that. Um, you know, uh, these companies charging other dollars that we may not know about, bringing them here, sometimes even heard of uh, some of these companies wanting to buy or invest in private schools in British Columbia. So it turns into a vertically integrated company where the, the issue is profit, not a kid's education. It's- My final question here, I just want to ask you, are public colleges and universities are also reliant on international students. Do you worry with this freeze, it will mean the public will have to put more dollars into the public education system just because we are so reliant on these huge fees these international students pay to prop up our public education system? So let's first of all be clear that that the the, the uh, international student fees are not subsidized fees, right? So, they, so, so international students pay the full cost of their education. And uh, when we do a comparison around the world, other um, English language countries, uh, we're in line with them. So it's not like they're different from any other, you know, on the global market. So if you take a look at Great Britain, or you take a look at the States or Australia, we're right in line with them in terms of what our institutions charge. Um, in terms of, you know, the impacts to the public institutions, those are conversations that we're ha- we've been having all week. Um, and our commitment is, you know, to work with them to make sure that they have the resources they need to continue to provide quality education for our domestic students and our international students, making sure that they have the supports they need um, so that everyone, uh, you know, gets their educational needs met and that they can graduate with full confidence that they have a quality education and that they can contribute. Minister, thank you for your time today. Thank you very much, Jess. Have a good one. Well, a federal inquiry into foreign interference begins uh, a week of hearings today on the preliminary point on, on how to handle the shroud of Official secrecy around the controversial issue. 
the inquiry has set the first five days of hearings to just identify ways to make information public, even though much of it comes from classified documents and sources. In the fall, there will be uh, further hearings on the ability of the federal government to identify and deal with cases of foreign interference. The final report from the commission is due by the end of 2024. Well, our next guest knows a little thing about a foreign interference. Kenny Chu uh, is a former conservative member of parliament for the riding of Steveston Richmond East. He lost the seat in 2021, and many have viewed that particular riding and that particular election where China was involved in regards to um, basically uh, uh, encouraging others to vote for anybody but Mr. Chu uh, through a variety of means, including social media and other ways. Joining me now to talk a little bit about this inquiry and what should come from it is Kenny Chu, a former Conservative Member of Parliament. Kenny, thank you for joining us today. Good afternoon, Jeff. Thanks for having me. What uh, is going through your mind today as this inquiry slowly begins? Um, I, th- I think it's like uh, we are seeing a, uh, a train track and, and and collision in slow motion right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, th- I think we, we've seen it in uh, David Johnson's uh, special repertoire's uh, so-called investigation, mm-hmm. and we know that it didn't end well. Uh, it looks like the government did not learn a thing or two about uh, about that lesson, and it's unfortunate that, that we are seeing this great opportunity of a, um, a true uh, inquiry into how deep and how wide um, foreign interference has been and will be in Canada uh, from various countries and uh, state actors, etc., and also transnational repression. All these are very complex um, topics and issues, and and I'm saddened. I'm really saddened to to see that the inquiry weren't given the adequate uh, time uh, and energy to get the job done. Uh, for example, what what's the role of Iran uh, in in all that in the foreign influence? At the United States uh, Treasury Department has published a report as highlighted by. The conservative Michael Chong on a Twitter tweet that uh, the United States and UK they detected that uh, you know the Iranian regime were, were using Canadian hail's angel in killing people in those two countries. And have they done something similar in Canada? We don't know. Likely, we're not going to look into that. So you think it should have been a lot fulsome? Um, uh, certainly, taken a lot longer. Uh, and and really look at foreign interference in a much more meaningful way where eventually there'll be some findings, hopefully, that can guide policymakers moving forward how to best protect our elections and Canada uh, in regards to foreign interference. Absolutely, uh, Jeff, because it should have done years ago. Uh, it should have been conducted, um, you know, in 2023, 2022, 2021, right after the election. But... Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, we've been dragging our feet, and the, the government is, uh, it looks like, just from the outside, that it's trying to sweep the whole matter under the carpet, unlike Australia, the United Kingdom, or the United States of America. Uh, these are nonpartisan issues that should be tackled and encountered, uh, you know, just uh, nonpartisan. It, it's something to do with national security, and I am saddened. I'm, I'm disappointed to see it. Uh, that's not the case in Canada. Uh, I was in Taiwan uh, last summer and uh, got to meet an NGO who had focused on Chinese election interference in that country. And as you know, 
with the history of China and Taiwan, very much interested in China, believes it's part of uh, its country. It's part of the broader uh, Chinese diaspora, and it should be part of Chinese territory. Um, uh, so very connected, obviously, to variety, for a variety of reasons. And you could imagine the election interference that was going on uh, prior to this recent Taiwanese election. But they also work very closely with NGOs and civil society. And I was amazed at uh, the kind of work they're doing in regards to monitoring Chinese influence. Uh, what, what would you say to the argument that, look, we have countries like Taiwan that could probably teach us things. You mentioned Australia, the UK as well, that perhaps we don't need an inquiry, just take best practices from those three countries alone and move forward in regards to start addressing this stuff rather than needing a full inquiry. What would you say to that argument? Well, Jeff, this is exactly the reason why uh, when I was a member of parliament uh, in 2021, I tabled a private member bill modeling, completely modeling after uh, the Australian model, mm-hmm. in hope that I will be able to introduce some of the, the best practices to uh, Canada. And you mentioned about Taiwan. Taiwan is the front line of that. Mm-hmm. What we are looking at in the Western world right now is a what I term a soft, uh, sorry, a hard interference. Mm-hmm. They organize, they directly get involved. But what we are seeing in Taiwan is the next level. They, they are engaging in soft interference. Uh, the 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 uh, pop, the, the um, popular uh, app on cell phone called TikTok and in in the Chinese version Douyin uh, becomes a platform that many young Taiwanese has been relying on to get their information, and that has been proven by some of the NGOs that you mentioned as the source of the the spread of this disinformation. Now. You know, Canada is a multicultural society that we all treasure and we all appreciate. Unfortunately, to to keep that, to, to keep it in harmony and prevent it from being wedged and used by foreign inter, uh, uh, special interest groups and also foreign states, we have to invest in countering some of these on WeChat, uh, on TikTok, on many other uh, apps and also sources of social media. Maybe the Russians are involved. Uh, in, in their own platforms, uh, the Iranians. But unfortunately, again, I don't see uh, any initiative or interests in getting into it. As I have observed in 2001, uh, it looks like the only the oppositions are interested in tabling something similar. Uh, you know, over a year ago, uh, Marco Mandicino, the, the, uh, the Algo, uh, now the, he, he moved on, um, he mentioned that, oh, we're going to have a, a foreign interference uh, registry. Well, where is it? You know, it looks like that we have conducted all the town halls, all the hearings around the country, but Canadians are not updated as regards to what's the legislation. Can we not just do that, um, the lowest hanging fruit right now? Kenny, as always, thank you for your time. Look forward to chatting with you. And as I said, the report is due by the end of October. And as you said, uh, we need a much more fulsome inquiry than what is uh, being promised at this time. Thanks for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Worries about social media's effect on hardwired kids are coming from all corners. As you all know, on Friday, the B.C. government announced school districts will need to restrict cell phone use in classrooms by September, saying the devices uh, are impacting the education and well-being uh, of our kids. Uh, Earlier this month, President Joe Biden uh, urged Congress to hold big tech accountable for dangerous content shared on social media. Uh, And also earlier this month, Seattle Public Schools filed a 91-page lawsuit against uh, the companies buying TikTok 
Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, and YouTube in a federal district court. Uh, it's an issue our next guest knows very well. William uh, Shinoff is a trial attorney at France Law Group in San Diego. His law group, with other firms, represents roughly 675 school districts in 32 states who are suing social media companies in both federal uh, and state court. Previously, Mr. Shinoff's law group uh, represented 1,000 school districts across the U.S. against Jewel Labs, Altria, and others for the youth vaping epidemic in the U.S. As a result of their efforts, Jewel agreed to pay a $1.2 billion in uh, youth vaping settlement. Mr. Shinoff, thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Uh, let's start for off the top. Where are we in regards to litigation in the United States? Because I would assume with so many uh, school districts, so many states, a very complex issue. Uh, give me a sense of where we are in regards to uh, legal proceedings with, uh, with the companies. Yes. Yeah, so we now have over a thousand school districts across the country that have filed lawsuits against uh, you know, Meta, TikTok, Snapchat and YouTube. Uh, for the harms that we believe that their platforms are causing to youth across the, across the country and across North America. Um, it, it's been a slow and arduous process in both federal and state court. Um, they have filed motions to dismiss in both venues, which have been denied. And just beginning this month, we have began the discovery process, and we're pushing the court to get trial dates set, hopefully in the middle of next year. How successful do you think uh, you will be? I mean, these are massive companies, uh, huge revenue, bigger than some countries, quite frankly. How uh, confident are you that you can be successful in this? I I think at the end of the day, the facts are going to support our case. We don't think this is going to be an easy battle. We don't think they they will give in. Uh, You know, these are this is something that's been going on for 10 plus years with a number of these companies that they believe they're doing no wrong. Uh, but with the research that's been shown with the, with the whistleblowers that have come forward to Congress, we believe that our claims will be vindicated in front of a jury. And if a trial is necessary and that's what we're prepared to be doing. And we're, we believe that we'll be successful at a trial. Mm. Uh, now, our uh, premier, uh, similar to a, gov- a state governor, uh, made announcements on Friday along with our attorney general that uh, uh, they want to restrict or at least have school districts bring in policies uh, to restrict cell phone use. They also plan to uh, launch um, um, services to remove images off the Internet and pursue predators. And also this spring we'll be interesting, introducing legislation to hold social media companies accountable for the harm they have caused. What advice would you want to give our Attorney General or, or broadly uh, our government uh, based on your experience in regards to how they should move forward in protecting kids? I believe that what legislative is definitely absolutely one great way to do it. Uh, We've already seen a number of states across the U.S. attempt to do it, but they've been challenged every time by interest groups bought and paid for by these, by these companies that challenge them in state court in their own respective state courts. And unfortunately have been successful. Uh, So are about 42 attorney generals at this point in response to those moves have now filed their own individual lawsuits uh, to protect the citizens in their states. Um, so I think legislation is one great way. I think trying to get input from these companies may be helpful to avoid challenges down the road. Uh, but, you know, maybe we, maybe they should look at what the attorney generals in the U.S. are doing and may need to go and bring their own actions against the companies to go and seek injunctive relief to go and tr- 
enforce what they're trying to do and get a court to go and require them to make these changes to make the platform safer for children. Do you think that's been the feeling that we as a society or our governments have been so slow, they've allowed these companies to get so big, uh, that there has been uh, hesitation on the legislative side to go after these companies, and it means lawyers like yourself, firms like yours, are actually having to do the heavy lifting to go after these companies now? Absolutely. I mean, the last thing, if you look at my clients, for instance, school districts, Mm -hmm. the last thing school districts want to do is get involved in in litigation. That's not the purpose of what they're doing. Uh, But the fact is, is that they've said enough is enough. Uh, They they're feeling the harm every day on campus uh, and they want change to happen. And, you know, they're not talking about just receiving money in a settlement. They want real changes in the company because what they've all told me is, Money is a Band-Aid. Uh, if we don't change their practices, the, this co- this conduct is going to continue to happen and we're, we're not going to make any change. So they want to see change. They The important parts of schools in our cases, they can tell the story of what they're seeing in the community with children on a daily basis. Uh, but this has been too long. I think we've given enough time for legislation to happen. Uh, but unfortunately, we've seen it, it there have been a lot of talk, but no movement. So uh, hopefully now that we've seen litigation ramp up, more attention being brought to the harms that we're seeing, I'm hoping for change. Um, can you give me a sense of what kind of stories you've been hearing uh, from your clients in regards to the impact uh, they say social media is having on kids? I mean, you, you have to go through all of it. You've got a case to present. Give me a sense of what broadly what you've been hearing. Yeah, I mean, two two instance, two different clients of mine really stick out because it's very recent. Um, one's from one's from California, another's from New Jersey, um, and they both had issues where uh, a post was made on one on Meta, another on Instagram, another on TikTok of children being assaulted and bullied, uh, and those posts going viral on the platforms. And it was causing these children severe uh, mental distress. And they would go to their school counselors and talk to them about it, uh, pleading for help because it wasn't being taken down. And that's all they were hearing and they were seeing. And so this, both school districts, respectively, went and reached out to the platforms to ask them to remove it. Uh, one, of, one of the instances, the platform said it didn't violate any of their policies, so they didn't remove it. Mm-hmm. The other did not uh even respond to a phone call. And in both cases, the children took their life. One child took their life on campus. Um, So, I mean, these are not, these are real stories that are happening. Um, And, you know, just banning, you know, taking away cell phones, blocking the platforms on Wi-Fi. uh, That's one great way to help and not disrupt the learning environment. But this is something that goes, that happens in school, out of school, and, you know, the, the harm is very real. And these are the stories that these companies will get to hear in court. Mm-hmm. How long do you think this will take? I know it's a very difficult question to answer, but is this something that's going to take five, seven years? Or do you think it'll be at least get to a decision sooner than that? Uh, well, this last week, we, we had a hearing in federal court um, where, you know, the defendants want to delay the public hearing the truth about what's going on. Um, and so they don't want trials till end of 2026 or 2027. Uh, but both our state court judges and federal court judge have said that this case is a priority. 
And we've heard that potentially we could get a trial in the middle of 2025. So if that's what's going to happen, then either we're going to trial and we'll, we'll see what a jury decides, or they're going to have to decide whether to resolve this uh, before then. So I don't think this is going to be another five to seven years. I think we're looking at maybe another year or two. Mr. Chinov, as always, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. I know you're a busy guy, you're a busy firm, and you're doing some really important work. really appreciate you making time for our audience today. Thank you so much. Thank you. Spent a lot of time, as you all know, uh, talking about housing uh, on this show. We just had the uh, housing minister of Ikea on a couple of weeks ago, um, the premier, uh, when he was last here in studio. We spent a lot of that time, the majority of our time, talking about housing. And a lot goes into housing. There's provincial legislation. Uh, there's even sometimes federal rules. But a lot of what um, uh, impacts housing and costs is actually at City Hall, at the municipal level. Well, the Canadian Federation of uh, Independent Business uh, had a very interesting uh, study done. It's part of their uh, CFIB 15th Annual Red Tape Awareness Week. And what they did was pres- uh, put together a report. And the report analyzed what type of permits and costs are required for a $20,000 project to convert a simple powder room into a full bathroom in 12 major cities across Canada. What would that cost in regards to permitting when it comes to your local city hall? Joining me now to talk a little bit about uh, this home reno is Duncan Robertson, Senior Policy Analyst for the Canadian Federation of Independent Business and co-author of the report. Duncan, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Great concept. Love the idea. Walk me through through what the the major findings with this uh, with this fictional home reno. Absolutely. So we looked at Canada's largest municipalities and measured um, the red tape associated with a simple bathroom project. Um, so we measured in terms of forms required as well as permitting costs that city hall places on contractors or small businesses. Um, we found that the average um, permitting cost was around five hundred and six dollars. And the average forms required are around seven. Now, if we put that in perspective for Vancouver, they're very much uh, well above this average, unfortunately, with around 11 documents required. And if you can believe it, over $2,000 in additional permanent costs placed on those who want to do a simple $20,000 bathroom rental. And so you said the average was 500. Vancouver comes in at uh, just over 2,000 and 11 forms. What was the cheapest? Yeah, so um, the uh, the one with the lowest amount of um, fees required would be Charlottetown, Prince Edward Island with 180. Um, if we're looking at other large uh, um, um, kind of municipalities, Calgary um, was around $439. Um, Toronto as well, um, Canada's largest city, was only $296. Um, so when we're looking at, at costs, Vancouver is definitely well above the, the major cities in Canada. Um, and of course, again, in forms required. Uh, what forms are required here and why the cost? There's such a difference in cost in your mind. Absolutely. Well, there, there's a, a, lit, a litany. I could list all 11, but it'd take a little while to do that. Um, you know, there's anything from a simple survey plan or floor plan, and then something as, you know, um, difficult to undertake as, you know, a, reno, a renovation energy upgrade proposal, which requires an, an energy advisor to come into your, your project um, or, you know, anything that really necessitates the um, use of a engineer or architect. So it is quite intense. Um, and we look, when we look at costs, um, the large amount of cost comes from the electrical permit side of things. Um, but then again, the building and plumbing permit are also well above averages and, and add to that, you know, $2,000 figure that we're seeing. 
So is this a case of the city of uh, or Vancouver generally uh, just been layering on costs or do you think some of these requests by local government are because of safety, uh, because of energy efficiency, or is this just a case of layering on costs in your mind? Yeah, look, there's definitely some regulations there that are important for safety. We're not saying get rid of those at all. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are some you know, things like there's a, a, a document called the owner's undertaking, which is essentially the owner attesting that they're going to follow the bylaws and are responsible for the work. Now, if you are going through the, the long process of getting this done in terms of the forms getting filled out, the money you have to hand over, you would expect that they would be following bylaws. Uh, so it could be something like just turning that into a, a check of the box in the building permit, just streamlining these processes, just so that you know contractors or small business owners or um, homeowners don't have to go through this huge process of checking what they, they fall under, what they don't fall under. And really, from an organization of our size, it was difficult even to... to get our heads around it at the beginning of it so you can only imagine what it would be for a homeowner a small business trying to undertake this you know significant red tape process for something as simple as a bathroom renovation i'm curious who was number two in regards to if vancouver was one who was number two what city was number two so if we're talking about forms required um toronto came in at two with 10 um and then for um cost um edmonton was quite costly um, the second highest at $673, so still not even close to the 2000 number. Um, but again, so there's, there's, some, there's some close ones in terms of, of forms required, but again, costs, they're well above the average for sure. So and, and is this Vancouver proper, the city of Vancouver, or is this for the whole Metro Vancouver region? So this is the city of Vancouver. Um, and if we look at, at neighboring you know, cities, uh, the city of Richmond has done some really good work um, in terms of the My Business Portal, um, allowing for real-time um, tracking of permits, as well as they're on their way to auto-approve simple permits, which would be a fantastic um, movement. Um, and then outside of Greater Vancouver, Kelowna, um, they're also using AI chatbots to answer simple questions with the eventual goal of being able for that system to um, you know, process simple um, permits and uh, development uh, uh, permits as well. Um, so there's lots of good work going on in BC, um, but again, the city of Vancouver definitely has some work to do. Do you think the will is there? I know the the, the mayor has a committee that look, was looking at red tape and, and how to be much more efficient. Uh, just recently, they released their findings, but in many cases, it, it really does come down to will that we are just going to do this, and there may be a, a small hole in, in our finances, uh, but we have to make things easier and simpler uh, if we want to continue uh, to get people to build homes and even do simple renos. Do you think the will is there at City Hall or generally with government to make some pretty, I mean, if, when you're going from 2000 uh, down to, um, you know, $600 or so, uh, that's still a significant cut for government. Do you think the will is there at City Hall to do this? I think the will is there at, at you know, all levels of government. Um, but of course, there is a lot of work to do on red tape. Um, it's great to see that, you know, the city is, you know, proposing some some innovative ideas. We just want to see those being put to work um, and making sure that when they are putting initiatives that they're being reported on in terms of the time and money saved would definitely be a benefit. But I think, look, if you look at any municipality across Canada, they're definitely focused on housing. It is an issue. Um, all levels of government are, are focused on it. Um, and particularly, we're, we're looking to provinces and the federal government as well to consider tying future funding for housing and infrastructure projects to requirements for a low administrative burden just to promote the good practices and, and you know help those municipalities who are putting in the good work to cut red tape and kind of put in a you know a some 
some uh, some good um, you know bonus points for those who are doing the work that that has to be done. Well, Duncan, uh, thank you so much for your time today. Definitely um, uh, something to think about. That's for sure. Thanks for your time. No problem. Anytime. Innovation Science and Industry Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne uh, is calling on the Competition Bureau to use its new powers to take another look at the cost of groceries in Canada. Now, last June, the Bureau released a report that said Canada's grocery sector lacks competition. The industry is dominated nationally by three domestic giants, Loblaws, Metro and Sobeys, which which is the owner of Empire, along with uh, foreign players like Walmart and Costco. Well, today, Champagne sent a letter to Matthew Boswell, the competition commissioner to complain about what he called the grocery company's lack of cooperation with the Bureau's study, which led to last summer's report. Now, in his letter, Champagne points out that the government recently overhauled the Competition Act to give the Competition Bureau more powers, including the power to subpoena information from companies when conducting uh, market studies. Take a listen. First, the Competition Bureau uh, now has subpoena power uh, to force companies like those in the grocery sector, to provide information as part of market studies. Second, uh, the Bureau has the power to block mergers that don't directly benefit consumers and stop abuse of dominance, something that we have seen over decades in this country, and now we can put a stop to that. And third, these changes mean it will be illegal for large grocery chains to prevent independent grocers from setting up shop in the same commercial building or complex. That is Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne speaking earlier today uh, in Ottawa. Joining me now to talk about today's announcement is Sylvain Charlebois. He's the director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Uh, Professor Charlebois, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. What do you make of uh, uh, Minister Francois-Philippe Champagne's uh, comments today in regards to the Competition Bureau and grocery stores? Well, it wasn't really an announcement, uh, but more like a warning, <laughs> because in December, uh, Bill C-56 uh, received uh, uh, royal assent, uh, and that really gave more power to the Competition Bureau, and I think that Minister Champagne felt that uh, it was important to remind uh, the grocery industry and Canadians that, uh, that, that the Competition Bureau now has more power subpoena uh, executives to get to the bottom of some of the things that are going on in the industry. Uh, so it was more of a, I would say, a, uh, a refresher course about <laughs> the Competition Act as we start the new year. Cause, uh, and I, I think that the Minister Champagne has every right to uh, be disappointed in terms of the transparency that uh, we've seen from, from grocers, generally speaking, uh, especially in light of what happened with the... Um, 50% uh, discount on uh, aspiring uh, food, uh, which just happened a couple of weeks ago. There was no announcement or anything like that. So uh, I think that uh, Minister Champagne was right to, to be a little bit disappointed. Why do you think these large grocers uh, who are dealing with a tremendous amount of frustration and anger uh, from Canadians, why do you think these companies don't want to cooperate? I, you would think they would have a, at least an argument in regards to why uh, uh, they're dealing with the challenges that they are. I mean, it's a business also that's been notorious for having very small profit margins at the end of the day, and they're viewed as making massive profits. Uh, why do you think the companies don't participate with the, with the, uh, with the Competition Bureau? Well, I, I think they fully understand uh, exactly what Ottawa's 
powers are, uh, and and they're quite limited. And uh, it is a free market after all. So I actually think that they they've been able to do what they've been doing for a very very long time without question. And they do believe that the food inflation storm is going to end eventually, and people will move on and not pay attention to. Uh, to grocery giants as much as as they are now, so I, I think they're just playing that card right now, mm-hmm. and um, and of course we're still dealing with an unpopular uh, government right now, and uh, and the one thing that concerns Canadians uh, is is the cost of living, and so uh, so it's quite natural and expected to see the government focusing a lot more on uh, on grocery prices. I believe it was earlier this month, Stats Canada said the country's annual inflation rate was 3.4%. That was for December, uh, while food inflation still stood at 4.7%. What is still causing this in your mind? Canadians believe it's uh, profiteering, greed. How would you best describe the, 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 the frustration of food prices not dropping in cost? Uh, I'm, I've, I was a bit, uh, to be honest, I was a bit concerned by, by the latest CPI report. We were expecting the food inflation rate to continue to drop. It did not. And, uh, and frankly, it's, uh, it's because of, of the fact that some categories got more expensive. Uh, and, uh, so this is certainly a concern, uh, that I think Canadians should have. Um, we're not seeing prices, uh, being stabilized as as uh, as the minister wants, so but we are expecting the food inflation to continue to drop. Uh, my guess is that uh, I would say that commodity prices are going to help. They've they have helped and will continue to help. So we are thinking. We do believe if the Canadian dollar remains a non-story, and if geopolitics uh, aren't. Uh, disturbing or disrupting the world economy as we saw with Ukraine a few years ago, we should be okay for the rest of the year. But again, it's a big if. What do you think this entire conversation has done in regards to shining light on food security, shining light on the food sector, on the grocery business? What are the sort of main takeaways for you over the last 18 months or so as costs have gone up? and are slowly, obviously Canadians would prefer faster, slowly coming down. What are the main takeaways and lessons in your mind from this entire um, conversation that we've been having the last 18 months or so? (laughs) I think a lot of people uh, still don't appreciate how food distribution actually works. Uh, I mean, I know that there's been a lot of attention given to to uh, retail, but it's it's a little bit more complicated than that. And if you actually look at some of the things that are going on up the food chain, uh, there are some troubling signs. Um, a lot of people, like Canadians, aren't aware, but ADM, which is one of the largest agribusses uh, in the world uh, out of the U.S., um, uh, Arch Daniels and Midland, uh, that that's a massive organization. It is now uh, being accused of uh, of uh, creative accounting, and some some executives actually have earned huge bonuses. Uh, still under the radar, and so I do I do hope that Canadians will pay more attention to things that are going up up the food chain, and not just at retail. It's more complicated than that. That's the one thing that I've noticed in recent months is that Canadians are so focused on retail, uh, but there are so many other moving parts 
that should be considered when we look at food inflation in general. Mm -hmm. Uh, How much of this also is that it's a wake-up call for us to better secure perhaps our own food security in those various supply channels, distribution networks, that we've got to do a better job as a country to making sure uh, there's competition there, but they are secure as well? Um, So overall, I think Canada is doing okay. Uh, I mean, compared to other countries, we're doing okay. Uh, But I do think that at some point we need to think about you know, instead of using Band-Aid solutions for food security, uh, like food banks, for example, we need to think uh, about, uh, you know, a uh, and generalized minimum income, for example, program or, or a, a nutrition coupon program through farmers markets. I think we need to be a little bit more strategic than, than, than just sending out money to people or encouraging them to visit food banks. That's the other disappointment that I have is that instead of just finding long-term solutions, we were just basically helping Canadians over the short term. But a lot of people will need help for an extended period of time. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in regards to this, where uh, the minister clearly uh, wants the Competition Bureau to, to act a little bit more and compel these companies to participate uh, in uh, a broader study in regards to food pricing, what do you see happening over the next year, year and a half in regards to this situation with the Competition Bureau? Well, I'm hoping that the company will actually capitalize on uh, what I would call an opportunity for it to become more forceful, more relevant. Um, I mean, look at its track record. Um, the bread price fixing scandal, the investigation has been ongoing since 2015. That's almost nine years ago, and it's still ongoing. Uh, I don't think Canadians are willing to accept this anymore. And so I do hope that uh, the Competition Bureau will take an advantage, uh, will we'll take Bill C-56, will embrace an op- the opportunity and, uh, and do its job to make sure that Canadians feel protected. Because I think that's the biggest problem right now. A lot of Canadians just don't feel protected. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mr. Charlebois, as always, thank you so much for your time today. My pleasure. You take care. Bye-bye. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.